everybody. Thank you for coming back to High Story. I'm Matt. Once again, I am your host. Once again, I don't know where the cat is. She will turn up eventually. I don't know if you remember last week, she popped in the very last second just to say hi, and then she left again. She is a very unreliable co-host. Whatever. Uh, thank you for listening last week. If you did, if not, go back and listen. It's it's fun. If nothing else, it's fun. But uh, this week, we're going to talk about... Um... Hey guys, this is Future Matt here in editing. I'm about to tell you the wrong episode name. That's all. I don't know if you remember from the History of Sushi episode the first time I briefly mentioned uh, something on the monster with 21 faces, and I looked into it, and it sounds interesting, if nothing else, so I wanted to look into this one too, and as I suspected, I was indeed right. Um, a group of individuals whom, to my knowledge, to this day have yet to be identified, kidnapped the president of the company that makes Pocky. So, this is pretty interesting. I There's a lot out there on this already. I, I just haven't heard of this one, so... Alright, so let's have some fun with this one today, because there's... Oh boy, is there a lot to get through today. And, there's a little bonus rant at the end about some stupid Midsummer Texas night bullshit, so stay tuned for that. Izaki Glico, which... Makes all kinds of stuff, but really the only thing you need to know is that they make Pocky. On Sunday, March 18, 1984, two masked and armed men kidnapped Glico president Katsuhisa Izaki around 9 p.m. Problem here is that he's totally naked upstairs because it's bath night at the Izaki household. One other problem with this... It's family bath time, so his 11-year-old son, Etsuro, and his other daughter, Yukiko, are also there. And before that, they had to tie up his wife, Mikiko, and his 7-year-old daughter, Mariko. Mikiko, Mariko, that's fun to say. So after they tied up his wife and daughter in the other room, they broke down the bathroom door, cue two screaming children in the bath, put a rifle barrel in Izaki's chests said, be quiet or I will shoot, and then walked him out of the door, stuffed him into a red car with one other driver and two other masked assholes. By the way, still naked. But wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. Glico is an enormous candy company, and they just kidnapped the president from his house. If you're the president of a giant corporation anywhere you'd probably be pretty well-to-do financially, and you'd probably got an alarm system on your house, right? Well, yeah, you'd be right. So, how the hell did they get into his house? While he was naked, by the way. Well, prior to abducting Izaki, the two men first went next door to his 70-year-old mother's house, Yoshi. It's spelled Yoshi with an E on the end of it, but I don't know if you're supposed to inflect the E or not. If it's Yoshi A, I'm not sure, but Yoshi's more fun to say, and it's pretty close anyway, so Yoshi. Um, they used a torch and something called gum tape to, like, ninja movie their way into the house. They put the tape on the edge of the window pane and then took the torch to it around it like you would see in, like, a Ren and Stimpy cartoon, and then pushed the window pane in silently and then broke into her house that way. 
um, tied her up with phone cord, and then stole the key to Izaki's house next door. And then they just left her there. I don't know how she got loose later on, if, if she got herself loose, or if Makiko came back later on and untied her. I'm not sure. <clears throat> but half an hour later from the abduction, Makiko frees herself and then goes and releases all the other kids from their varying states of confinement. And she looks around and notices, Oh shit, my husband's not here. Is that why they were here? And so she calls the cops. But that takes a little bit of time since they also cut the phone lines. But again, Katsuhisa Izaki is the president of a huge candy company. Everybody's losing their minds. So when the cops show up, they do all the usual cop stuff whenever an important person or really anybody gets kidnapped, hopefully. So they set up a perimeter, do APBs, checkpoints, um, field sobriety tests, wrongful arrest. Sometimes there's just one guy in the crowd just bucking shots off, just shooting random people, whatever. Just, you know, normal cop stuff. Oh, I don't know either. Uh, ended up having 163 investigators get involved with this. 163 different cops trying to figure out where this guy went. The kidnappers finally call the human resources director of Glico, Fuji Hirotaki. His name's spelled the same. I don't know. I'm going with Fuji. They call him at around 1.15 a.m. And it... That's amazing he answered the phone. It... I am not answering the phone at 1.15 a.m. I am so high at 1.15 in the morning. It's not happening. No. But it's a good thing he answered the phone because it turns out it's Azaki. Yay! And he tells him to go look in a phone booth in Takatsuki, which is about 30 miles northeast from where Azaki's house is, for a brown tea envelope. Woo! Scavenger hunt! Yeah! Until they read the letter, which turned out to be a ransom note, demanding 1 billion yen and 100 kilograms of gold. Oh no, it's not delivery, it's demand. <laughs> Don't have lots of money for safe return of a hostage. <laughs> and also definitely not Azaki. Twas a recording. So at this point, nobody has any idea where he was taken or who is responsible. Alright, the next day, while preparing the ransom, the phone rings at 6.09pm at Fuji's house, but no one answers. The phone rings again a short time later, about 15 minutes later, at 6.24pm, and a shitty-sounding, low-quality, choppy recording of Izaki is heard giving drop-off instructions for Fuji. They arrive at the location, it's a restaurant called Kotobuki, at about 7.30, so... A little over an hour later. 20 minutes later, while they're waiting, they get another call. And then at 8.52, they get another call, and they're told that Izaki is in a hospital in Setsu. But, turns out, no, he isn't, so the whole thing fizzles out, and they have to abandon the operation for now. Really quick. Need to go back. A little bit of an important detail with the break-in. Shit loads of people had knowledge of the Izaki household. 111 family members 
177 friends, 208 construction workers or contractors, and 14 housekeepers. That's a lot of people with at least some kind of knowledge of that house inside and out. So where did he go? Well, through some clever mental gymnastics, Izaki figures out that he's most likely being held at the Yodogawa Coastal Defense Association Warehouse. That's 15 syllables of time I'll never get back. Not many people are aware of the building either. It's kind of tucked away behind the trees in some windy roads and not really any reason for them to know about it because it's only mostly stocked with disaster relief supplies. Um, you know, you got sandbags, ropes, barricades, knives, grenades, torpedoes, gas cans, flamethrowers, road flares, whips, battle axes, ninja scrolls, you know, normal flood damage response stuff. So the next day, March 19th, the very next day, He's left in the warehouse with one of the three kidnappers. By the way, still naked! (laughs) No, they actually did put some clothes on him. Kinda. And they don't mention any of the names of the kidnappers. And instead of doing ABC or 123 or Do-Re-Mi or any of the Jackson 5, I'm just going to instead call them Tito, Jermaine, and LaToya. Miss Jackson if you're nasty. I know, that's so stupid, but I laugh every time I read it, and I wanted to leave it in because it's so stupid, and they're not really involved anyway. So, the only person that is involved is only one person at the moment with him at the warehouse, and I'm just going to call him, uh, let's call him Levi. Levi is about 20, 5 foot 4, and really bad acne, or at least bad enough to mention, you know, bad enough that he noticed it to mention to investigators. The other two men, we assume, are men anyway, were only a little bit taller and don't really have much of a physical description, or at the very least, no acne that he could see. So they escort him up a ladder to a second floor in a really tiny room, tie him to a chair, and take some photos of his still-naked body. It's the next day. Presumably, they take the pictures for proof or extortion or uh, maybe a sexy calendar. I don't fucking know these people. But after they take the pictures, the other two men, I'm going to call them Colton and Preston, leave the warehouse to go make some weird shitty quality phone call. To go make that weird shitty quality phone call from earlier. March 20th, 10 p.m. Colton is the only one left with Izaki at the warehouse. Luckily, he's got some actual clothes for him this time, but he does have him speak into the recorder once again. Threatens him, saying if he doesn't, he will kill his daughter, whom he's been outside playing games with in the car. Lie. She's at home totally fine. Sorta. Dad's missing. She's unharmed. She's fine. Whatever. Then Izaki asks him to please loosen my wrist ropes. Well, Colton doesn't like this. Because Colton doesn't take orders from anybody, and so he punches him in the face and leaves Izaki and never sees any of them again. That's the last time Izaki ever sees him. Okay, I don't know if, you know, there was maybe no punching or screaming, but that is the actual last time we'll see him, so whatever. Finally, finally, after he leaves, 15 hours later, being tied up alone in a dingy warehouse full of questionable disaster relief supplies... 
He summons what's left of his strength and frees himself from the ropes. It busts through the front door of the warehouse, leaving an Izaki-shaped hole like the Kool-Aid guy on my socks. Yes, I have a Kool-Aid guy socks. And with only a vague sense of where he is, he trudges through mud, mud and puddles and up and down hills and through the woods and it's dark and raining and he's barely got any clothes on until he eventually finds two rail yard workers who lead him to a phone so he can call the police to come get me. Mom, can you come get me from the roller rink? I'm ready to be picked up. And he also calls home to find that his family is safe and that Colton is a lying asshole. No one ever left the house. He never had his daughter with him. So, thanks. But, um, but um, during interview during interviews with investigators, police said he was hesitant to reveal the details and that he just wanted to go home. And I get that, kind of. If I'd just been kidnapped from my home, totally naked, from three days, I'd probably want to go home and recover a little bit, too. That's, that's got to be stressful, you know? So, yay, Izaki is safe. He's home. He's totally fine. He's unharmed, save for just a few scratches on his cheek. But, you know, he, like myself, and I'm guessing many of the rest of you out there, want to know who the fuck did all this and why. Well, what we know so far is, on the day of the kidnapping, Izaki was abducted from his home by two people, with a third waiting in the getaway car. One man was around 40, 170 centimeters, I think that's 5'6", five, 5'7", five, right about my height, I think. I promise it wasn't me, I wasn't even born yet. He carried a rifle, which Izaki thought might be plastic. The other suspect is around 160 centimeters, maybe a little bit younger, maybe around 35, and he had a handgun, presumably also plastic? Both men wore white masks and gloves and dark clothes and shoes. And we've already gone over the other suspect, Levi, who unfortunately still has a bad acne problem. Two years prior to when the house was built, movers required a key to bring furniture into the home. And once Izaki was given the keys, he only received two one of which he gave to his mother, who lived right next door. Two days prior to the abduction, Mikiko noticed the two lanterns in the back garden, which can be seen from both homes. They were turned off from about 10 p.m. to 11 p.m., and they were also turned off the night of the abduction. Izaki's mother had the only other known key to his house, which had a high-tech security system on all the windows and doors, and they left the key in the door when they left. And that also the security system was alerted since they cut the phone line. Later on during investigations or interviews with um, Izaki's family, Mikiko says that she tried to offer one of the kidnappers money, but he told them to be quiet, money is irrelevant, and knew Mariko's name. He knew his daughter's name already. Uh, then they were bound with red tape. They found shoe prints from two different types of cheap jogging shoes. It was raining that night. And Izaki was not aware of the door that he escaped from. He just happened to stumble across it. It's a, it's a rail system door, kind of like barn doors, I guess, like a sliding side-to-side -side barn door, but just made of these giant metal doors. And the only thing keeping them together closed is a bolt stuck through the middle of it, and it's affixed to the other side with just a nut. And they've been there so long that they're corroded together and kind of rusty. 
Police say it would have been difficult for Izaki to have escaped the way he did, which was kicking around till he found a, a hole in the door that let some light through, and then he just kept kicking until the bolt got loose, and then he undid it and then opened the door. They said that that would be kind of difficult to do. Here's the most amazing thing about this whole thing so far is it only took six minutes to abduct Izaki. From the time the men entered their house, the Izaki house, went upstairs, tied up his wife and daughter, broke into the bathroom, got the two kids to be quiet, put the rifle in Izaki's chest, took him out, walked him back down the stairs, got him in the car, and drove away. That only took six minutes. So I'm going to put that in context for you here a little bit. Everybody knows, thanks to Stranger Things now, Everybody knows Master of Puppets. Very popular Metallica song for basically my entire life. I, that was the first one I ever learned how to play when I started learning guitar. Um, everybody knows that song now. Thank you, Stranger Things. When no, I haven't seen it. If you see me, don't ask. I don't know. But also no spoilers because I don't care. And don't tell me anyway. I'll watch it eventually. Maybe. But Master of Puppets is eight and a half minutes, give or take. And... That song, right at the very best part, the very fastest part of the solo, that's whenever, that's six minutes right there. It takes right up to the solo in Master of Puppets. That's how long you could, you could listen to that song up to that point while these men kidnapped Izaki from his home. So, other questions that I have that I would like answers to. I don't know if I can get them, but... These are some questions that I had that they, I hope, are relevant. Who did this, obviously, and why? Why did one of the kidnappers tell Makiko that money is irrelevant? If they're not really after money, what are they really after? And if Izaki alone was the target, why would the kidnappers leave him alone in the warehouse for so long? If they were really after him, why, why bother going through that whole thing and replacing his handcuffs with wrist ropes and then why would they why would they bother going through all that to make it seem like it's easier for him to get away almost like they're doing it on purpose like they want him to i don't know and why would they have a toy gun can they not afford real ones is that is that what the ransom's for they just wait 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 hold on i got it i thought of something maybe Maybe it's for, uh, like, an upcoming criminal gang who, they're really excited for, you know, breaking into the world of organized crime, and they really want to do good, and they have a lot of really talented people on their payroll, and they want to just come out guns blazing and shoot to the top of the whatever corporate ladder there are in organized crime syndicates, but they just, for whatever reason, they just can't quite get the proper funding for, you know, more proper weapons. Maybe that's it. I don't know. And one another another question I have, and I think everyone else is also dying to know, will Levi ever get rid of his debilitating acne? This case has not been solved, by the way. No one has ever been prosecuted in relation to the kidnapping or the upcoming chaotic series of events. There's a ton of theories, and some seem to think it's tied to the Yakuza, but, you know, honestly, that doesn't that just seem kind of too easy? It's... Everything in Japan is 
somehow or another tied to the Yakuza, it seems like, or it could be. It's just, it feels like the easiest thing to blame just to kind of stop talking about it. But luckily, I'm still talking about it. We're all still talking about it. I want to talk about it with you some more if you have thoughts on this. Um, maybe someone on the inside of Glico who's kind of salty about company policy. Um, you know, and while no arrests were made, there's one suspect that they seem to follow pretty closely, and we're going to get to know him pretty well or as well as we can. And alongside that, we're going to get to know some very, some very strange ransom demands and poorly worded letters and just all kinds of weird shit that happens over Japan in the next, um, what is this? I think, uh, next year and a half or so. Just all kinds of nonsense. So alongside the nonsense, we're going to get to know what they call the fox-eyed man who... <laughs> If you've seen it, if you've seen the episode of American Dad where they're bought by a Chinese billionaire, he kind of looks like the Feng Wah character in that episode, which I thought was funny. I looked up a, the um, composite sketch from Witness Statements and a picture of Feng Wah, if he were a real person, and it's kind of creepy how much they seem to look like one another, and I know it's totally not that person at all, but... I thought it was a really cool kind of side-by-side -side thing to see that it was that close. And by the way, it's been six minutes, so let's start off with a fucked up piece of mail that, yeah. On April 2nd, 1984, about 2.30 at the Izaki residence, a letter marked for express delivery arrives with a stamp that can only be purchased from three places. Inside the letter was an eyedropper full of hydrochloric acid, a cassette tape of Izaki's recording, or of Izaki's second recording, and the letter itself contained some honestly pretty scary stuff. And what I first got when I read it was that this was absolutely not written by the first person that wrote the ransom note the first time. It is a completely different um, pacing, completely different word and sentence structure. It's 100% not the same person. It said... I told you if you run away or disobey us, we will kill both you and Mariko. My people are really mad at you. There are also, there are also people telling me to abduct your wife, use her like a toy, ugh, and then kill her. And that's the line right there. That's the one that makes me think this is written by someone else. They didn't specify anything like that in any of the other notes so and that other one was the grammar was so choppy and it almost like a kid wrote it or a kid was reading it or something i don't know we'll never be caught by the police and then it also included some blackmail photos of when he was still naked they also decide to increase the ransom demand to 10 million yen per person so now it is 60 million they also give some delivery instructions, and with all that combined with all the items above, yeah, that's a pretty goddamn creepy letter to get in the mail. That's yeah, not a great way to start. Not how I'd want to start my early afternoon. Not at all. Then on April 10th, 1984, sometime right around 9 o'clock, a little bit before, there is a gasoline-soaked cushion found to be the source of a fire at one of the Glico headquarters. And then 20 minutes later, 
another fire in a different Glico company parking lot. This time it's a car. They fucking torched a car. Witnesses report seeing a man about 5'6", maybe 5'7", white mask, work clothes, jeans, carrying a bag running away. You know, shady shit. Then on April 22nd, another ransom demand is sent to Fuji at his home. I think at his home. It, I'm not clear there. And then on May 10th, a month later, there's another letter, this time sent to the police, claiming they've injected two candies, two random candies with cyanide. And this one also clearly written by a different person. Now hold on, wait, I, I know what you're thinking. The police just got a letter saying that they've possibly got two random candies somewhere in the city. Now this is absolutely a matter of public safety, and Glico is forced to make a decision. Eventually, they decide they're going to pull not just their candies, but literally everything off the shelves. And the public had no idea what happened. They're going out. They like Glico candy. It's tasty. I like Pocky, too. I like the cookies and cream kind. And regular chocolate, too. They're all good. Green tea? Stop it. This is not... <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway the public goes out and they're looking for more Glico candy and they can't find any and they're like where's the fucking Pocky you know what fuck you guys and the stocks plummet and then there's a series of ransom notes and other threatening letters throughout and nothing really comes to fruition they even got a, a failed bait car sting operation thing that ends up with no new leads and just ends up scaring a po some poor teenager who got roped into the middle of all this somehow up until june 22nd 1984 a letter arrives at the president of yet another japanese food company takashi haga receives a vague threatening letter at his home in takatsuki it's a weird letter too it just randomly mentions a time which is june 28th at 8 p.m it mentions that time something, and then it mentions how easy it is to put cyanide in things, and, and and they can even put it in ham and sausage and bacon and pork chops and all this. It's so easy to put into anything, and that's really the only other thing they got until all the way up until October 7th. A man is seen entering a candy shop just before noon, somewhere around the ages of 20 to 30. Baseball cap, glasses, he's about 5'6", and permed hair. Now remember that, okay? He's caught on camera placing a candy bottle on the shelf, then buying a magazine and leaving. Super sus, right? Sus. And when investigators came upon the candy on the shelf... It had a note on it that said, This has poison in it. If you eat it, you will die. They tested it, and come to find out, it had 0.18 grams of cyanide in it. I don't know if it's my ability to do math at midnight after smoking a whole bunch of weed and wax literally all day, hotboxing my closet. Or whether the formula or numbers I got were off, but this was enough for 15, this was enough cyanide to kill 15 people. 
And there were three more candies at this time that were found in Hyogo, Kyoto, and Osaka, all bearing the same weird letter that said, if you eat it, you will die. All right, so now we got to back up a little bit, and we need to catch back up with the fox-eyed man. We need to go back to June 28, 1984. Cops get a phone call at 8.03 p.m., which is a recording of a woman's voice. It tells them to go check for an envelope at a bus stop, and then they find it 13 minutes later at 8.16. And it's instructions on what to do next. Oh boy, another scavenger hunt. Hooray. And it tells them to take the 8.19 train. Oh shit, we're not going to make that. And when they get on the train, it tells them where they'll be able to sit so that they can throw the money bag out the window. Need to look for a white flag, then toss the bag. And if they don't see a flag... Take the next train, turn around in Kyoto, and try again. And then the letter also included a ticket for the train. How sweet. So the detectives get on at 8.35, which is the wrong time. They had to. They, this is the very next train. And he looks around, and he gets eyes on a pretty suspicious-looking fellow. 5'6", five, 5'7", five, thin lips, thin eyebrows, gray suit, silver glasses, acne! I don't know. Probably not acne. No. Sorry. <laughs> no, but he did have an umbrella and permed hair. Remember that? Like I told you to a minute ago? This is why. This is the fox-eyed man. All right, so now we're on board the train, and the guy with the bag sits near the front of the train instead of following what the directions on the letter said. The reason for this being that Anybody that might want to come looking for the bag would have to come all the way up to the front train car, which would immediately be suspicious to the investigators on board watching for this guy. Oh yeah, they call him the fox-eyed man, by the way, because of his silent gaze, hunting like a fox. Which is exactly how they wrote it and how they want it to be read, and it just sounds stupid when you look at this guy's picture. And it's also rather unbefitting because he's wearing such a cheap suit that he looks like pretty much any other white-collar, middle-class fuckwad in a cheap suit on a train looks. But I, I guess just something about those eyes, man. They, they can't help it. <laughs> he's also described as having an apocalyptic atmosphere about him, which is the most bizarre word I've ever seen used as an adjective i've never heard any person described as having an apocalyptic atmosphere just <laughs> like being near him is just gonna summon meteors from space to come destroy everybody anyway so he's chilling out over in the next train car and he starts looking around old foxy boy getting a little squirrely starts looking around and the cops take notice of this so being all squirrely, he gets up and walks to the front of the train car. Super suspicious. And then he looks through and he sees the money guy in the next car and just watches him. And I like to think he's like a dog that's like looking out the window at the front door, like a full glass window, but he's a little bit too close to the window, so his snout's all pushed up against it, and his teeth are like clanging on the glass like... That's how I like to imagine he's just like super face pressed up against the glass looking at this guy in the money bag like, Is that my money in there? He's doing that until the train stops in Kyoto at 
Off the train goes Mr. Moneybags, a radio operator, and Foxy Boy himself, Naruto Uzuma. I mean the fox-eyed man. And as they make their way through the station, the fox-eyed man is watching him. Hunting. Remember, those eyes in the atmosphere. Until the investigator calls headquarters asking about what to do. Meanwhile, Mr. Fox is watching him from behind a nearby corner, possibly doing other stuff. They ask for permission to question Mr. Seemingly Infinite Chakra, and they were told, No! Wait till he touches it! The money bag, anyway. Then he he purchases a return ticket. While I'm here, might as well go pee. And then he goes to wait for the next train. I don't know how many times I've said... In my life, while I'm here, I might as well go pee. It's such a fucking problem lately. <laughs> Gotta stop fucking drinking energy drinks. Um. Anyway, where am I? He goes back to wait for the train. And while still being watched from a comically close distance of about three meters, maybe ten feet away, Apparently just circling around this guy, checking him out, just walking around him, looking him up and down, up and down, up and down. So he gets aboard the next train, and so does our lead suspect, Mr. Foxman. But Mr. Moneyman gets off at Takatsuki and is driven all the way back to the Marudai president's house, whose name I don't remember and I didn't write it down, so I don't care anymore. And then the fox goes back to Kyoto. Where, at 10.17 p.m., there are two undercover cops waiting to catch him. But he's too slippery. He bobbed and weaved and squeezed his way through the tunnels and through the subway stuff and narrowly avoided capture. And then they finally end up losing track of him in the crowd at about 10.30. He's been seen a few more times throughout the year, but they were never able to actually take him in for questioning and... One officer, he put up such a, he put up such a good fight. He he was trying so hard. He took a picture of him with a concealed camera, but it turns out he ended up getting just a real nice close up of an ant on the ground. Oh, is that him? And why should we care who this guy is? Because his name is Manabu Miyazaki. No, not that Miyazaki. Not the one that created Elden Ring, which I'm going to go play right after this. No, I still haven't beat it yet. No, I don't use the Rivers of Blood. I'm not going to get into my build right now. But anyway, not the same guy. And where did he used to work? Izaki Glico. And he's also the same guy from the video on October 7th that I mentioned earlier. He was shit-canned from Izaki Glico for being a corporate snitch. He, uh, he blew the whistle on some illegal dumping activities. The police followed him around for a couple of years after that, but they could never quite get enough on him and then ended up giving up on him in 1999. They couldn't get any of his alibis to... They all checked out and they couldn't get anything to get him in. Oh, shit! Um, I totally forgot. Um, one of the police chiefs, I forget... His name, and I don't want to say the wrong one, but he set himself on fire in shame because of not being able to catch this guy. (sighs) He had so much shame for not being able to 
catch a criminal that's been making a mockery of the police for the greater part of a year that he said, nope, I'm out. I'd rather be a mantelpiece. But that's pretty much it. That's it. That's all I got. That's that's the important parts that I saw. Uh, a little bit about what I think, you know, here, who the prime suspect was. And there is so much more to this, but... I had to consent I had to condense it down a little bit for just for time's sake. It's already getting kind of long, I know, and you know, it's fine. I, I do want to talk about this with you guys more too over on the Facebook page and I guess now is also a good time to mention that I'm on Spotify for sure and you can give me five stars over there if you like what you hear. All that stuff. I haven't quite figured out iTunes, but I'm working on it, so that'll be coming up soon. And that's all for the social media stuff, plugs, things like that for now. I'm not going to worry too much about that anyway. So here's just a few more thoughts I had while reading through this, and then right after that, the rant that I promised you. And then that'll be it. It's still weird to me how the kidnappers knew Mariko's name and they didn't need any money, and that they had intimate knowledge of not only Azaki's house, but also a really obscure flood control system facility that not even the neighbors who lived around it knew about. Just kind of weird to think, you know, maybe they might also know, have some intimate knowledge of some of the police or other people at Azaki headquarters or the other food companies. Like, if they knew all this much about the president of Glico, how it's not crazy to think that they would have inside information on other people as well. So I don't know what that is, but I'm working through a few things that I'm reading through that, but we can talk about that a little more later on. So I will leave you with the rant about Oh, having to have a shitty apartment complex repair your AC in the middle of July on a weekend. Have you ever had the thought, how the fuck is my life a true story? Okay, so this is how stupid my weekend was. One night at work, which is in a very busy sushi restaurant, the AC stopped working, and every single table was at capacity. I finally get home after a 12-hour shift and walk into the door of a balmy 82-degree apartment. It's 10 o'clock, it's dark, it's not getting any cooler. I was also expecting a new bed frame to be delivered that evening, but instead, I'm greeted by a malfunctioning AC unit and still sleeping on the floor. I go to the office the next morning, the moment they open, explain the situation, and they say that a certified AC repair technician will be by soon, but he's working with another client. Okay, cool, fine, whatever, fine, it's cool. It's only fucking 82 degrees in my apartment, no problem, it's cool. Well, fast forward four goddamn hours later with no AC in Texas in July, and Still no certified AC te repair technician. Like, seriously. How the fuck is this a true story right now, four hours later? So I go to the office again, and they say he's still busy, sorry. Alright, fuck it, whatever. 
I'm going to my dad's. I gotta, I gotta go grab some stuff, and it's gonna be a while, so I gotta kill some time anyway. Whatever. So as I'm driving there, I get a call around 3 p.m. A full six hours later, they finally completed the job, replaced the burnt fuse, and replaced my AC filter. Hooray! All's well, right? 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 No. I get back home to a still 83-degree apartment. And I mean still in both ways, both still occurring and the air inside of it. So I call them again. Hold, please. <sighs> okay, he's coming back. Then the guy comes in on the phone with someone and wet shoes on my newly replaced carpet from the last time I had to call the office with an emergency, which was two months ago. How the fuck is my life a true story? Fuse got burned out again. And then he just leaves for like a long time, says, I'll be right back. And then just doesn't say when he's going to be back, just leaves for a long time. And so he eventually comes back and tries replacing the fuse again, but it burns out again. So something must be causing an issue on the outside unit. But it's raining right now, so I'll have to come back tomorrow when it's not raining. It's Texas in July. If it's raining, just wait a few minutes and it's probably going to clear out and then go right back to being hot and sunny as shit. So, what the fuck? So what do they do? Instead, we're going to put a giant tacky window unit in the middle of my goddamn kitchen floor, drawing up more power than the regular AC would, so thanks for the higher electric bill this month too, fuckers. Oh, and for sending out your best, most certified trained AC repair technician who can't figure out how to fix one unit for some lonely bald fuck and his cat. Was it his first fucking day being certified? D did he fucking drive straight from the place to here to my apartment? How bad did he fuck up that other lady's day? And if it seems like this is a little bit longer of a story than it should for having a broken AC... That's because it shouldn't take this long to fix a fucking AC unit. Most people don't have to deal with this shit. They have a problem. They call. It gets fixed in a few minutes, and they go about their day. That's fine. Meanwhile, I'm over here standing in front of my window unit that's on the floor for some reason, holding my shirt in front of it for airflow because it's hot, because it's Texas in July. And I look out the windows, and I see blue skies and no rain. How the fuck is my life a true story? <laughs> <laughs>